0: Well, good morning again. (laughs) Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I just want to comment uh, what an appropriate hymn, Uh, that last hymn that we just sang was. It says uh, probably like eight or nine times in that hymn alone, uh, it says, Master, uh, giving the listener the position of servant that's listening. And today we're going to talk about that relationship a little bit uh, between the master and the servant. How does uh, a servant relate to his master? By what the word that the master gives him. Right? The servant does what the master speaks. And that's what we're here to talk about this morning is the very word of God that we'll be studying. But So um, I'm going to go ahead and just read the two verses that we've got this morning at the end of chapter 3. Uh, if you're going off the, the church bulletin... Uh, you're a little misled. I'm not starting chapter 4 today. I'm doing the last two verses of chapter 3. So it says, Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And boy, I'm so glad these two verses are in the Bible. (laughs) So, uh, just to kind of do a bit of recap on where we've been on uh, this whole chapter previous, we've talked a lot about knowing what the truth is and the Word of God. And the importance of it because of all the false teaching uh, that's going on and of life and the difficulties of life and of uh, persecution that we can expect uh, to... Uh, encounter as Christians, if we're going to encounter all all these difficulties and persecution and trials and false teachers, how do we prepare for that? Well, we have to know the Word of God. And so we've seen emphasized over and over in this chapter to know the truth. Well, how do we know that the Scriptures are true? Right? That's the question. If we're going to be studying something... Shouldn't we know that what we're studying is true? If we're going to be preparing for something, shouldn't we know that our preparations are actually going to help us for what we're preparing for? If you're (laughs) going to... What's the expression? Don't show up with a knife to a gunfight, right? We want to be properly equipped for the things that we are going to encounter in life. And so, today we're going to talk about how do we know... That the scriptures are what we need to equip us for life. How do we know that they're the truth? How do we know that they're the word of God? Well, it's pretty simple. (laughs) It's not a complicated argument. It simply says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's pretty simple, isn't it? It says all the scripture that we've got, that's God given to us. It's from God himself. And that's important, right? We're not studying a collection of writings written by men that sort of, you know, are a self-help book or encouraging words or things that might help you or, you know, some internet list of 17 things that'll help you uh, encourage your life. Or if it was the Bible, you know, 66 books you just gotta read in your lifetime, right? It's not one of those catchy things, That's, you know, man made up. This is given to us by God himself. And it carries the full weight of his authority. And this is important to us for a couple of reasons. The um, leadership of this church actually went to put together a doctrinal statement, right? And I'm just going to read an excerpt. Uh, From the doctrinal statement, this is like the second line in our doctrinal statement. So you figure it ought to be pretty important if they put it all the way up at the top like that. It says in our church doctrinal statement, Every word in the original writings of the Holy Scriptures is inspired of God, authoritative, and without error. The Bible is the only written revelation of God to man and is infallible. And it lists a couple verses in the doctrinal statement. One of them is this verse that we've got right here. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, the other two being 2 Peter 1.21, which I'll talk about in a minute, and Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6. Okay, So right in our doctrinal statement for this church, it says this is what we believe about the Bible, that it is the, uh, the word of God, authoritative and without error. That's what we believe the Bible to be. And it's important that we believe that. Because if we don't believe that, it leaves all sorts of room for man's interpretations to creep in rather than actually seeing what the Lord of God is. And we, as a church, have to be a church founded on the truth rather than on error. And it means, when it says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, it means that God has personally given to men what he wants written down. And uh, I'll, I'm going to go ahead and quote from Second uh, Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 20 and 21. Uh, it's written, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So what's that telling us? That's telling us that the 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 prophecy that is the word of God that's given to us isn't of uh, private interpretation. That means uh, some person just said what they felt like saying that given day. It's not a a, a, it's not a uh, it's not a paraphrase. It's not a um, a man made document. No. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This is God's word given to us through men. It doesn't have the authority of men. It has the authority of God. And so that is why we believe it. Because God himself, as we know, is the source of all truth. Man, (laughs) we're liars from the beginning, right? And deceived by the father lies himself. And in our heart is also to wickedness, and our heart is deceitful beyond measure. Who can know it? Right? We don't base what we believe on to be the word of, word of man, but the word of God, from who is eternal and unchanging and the source of all truth. That's what we believe. And the belief that what God says is true, that is the foundation for everything else. Because if you don't believe that what God said is true, how can you believe anything else that's written in the Bible? You've got no no logical basis, right? Uh, Even (laughs) if God says that Jesus rose from the dead, but you don't believe that everything that God says is true, how are you supposed to know that Jesus rose from the dead? If God says that he created the world, but you don't believe that what he says is true... How do you know where the world came from? And if God says he's coming again, and you don't believe what he says is true, how are we supposed to live like he's coming back again? Right? Everything, everything that we believe is based off of the foundation of what God says is true. Everything else is constructed upon that. And If anyone suggests that what the Word of God says is not true or that it can be interpreted a multitude of different ways or if, yeah, that was relevant for that culture at that time, we ought to have warning bells going off all over the place. And uh, in fact, I think it quite honestly, I think it ought to make us angry when people say, oh yeah, yeah, Um, that's, that's sort of true in the Bible or yeah, but what God really meant was, right? (laughs) If, if, If you ever hear me say that out of my mouth, if I'm standing up here and I said, well, what God really meant is don't believe the next words that come out of my mouth. Okay. I'm not here to twist and to bend what God says. I'm here to share with you what he says not twist it to my own interpretation. This is what God means. This is why He gave us these verses. And when I say, I'm glad that these verses are in the Bible, I mean it, <laughs> because I need to know that what I believe is truth. I'm basing my entire future upon the truth of God's Word. So I'm, I'm, I'm all in. I'm, I'm, I'm sold into this whole idea. And if you're not convinced that the word of God is true, let's start the discussion there. Right. Let's talk about what he says about our hearts being deceitful. Let's talk about where he says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the truth. So let's start there. And uh, to kind of illustrate to you what I'm talking about. Um, I'm going to share with you an article I read. Uh, one of my Facebook friends shared this. No, nobody here in this room, don't, don't worry. But it's, a, it's an article. It's false teaching, okay? And um, all the warnings that Luke and I and Don and everybody who stood behind this pulpit, warning about false teachers ever said, it's all contained in this. So I'm, I'm going to read parts of it. But I don't want to read it and say, you ought to think about this because it might be true. I'm reading this to see, say, this is what people say, and this is what gets me angry when I read it. So this is, um, uh, one of my friends shared this article. It's uh, from a man um, not named John Pavlovitz, and it's titled, Words About the Ocean. And it's very cunningly written. It's it's very well worded, but the author has an agenda in mind. And if you look into who the author is, um, one of his uh, he 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 was a pastor, and he tried bringing in all sorts of uh, false doctrines about uh, sexuality and stuff like that into the church, and he got removed from being the pastor of that church. And so he took up writing uh, on his website to try and persuade. A larger audience. And it's, it's really sad that he would write this stuff. But he says, here's five things about the Bible, he says, that I wish more Christians would consider. And he starts off, the Bible isn't a magic book. It's a human library. It isn't the good book. And he uh, <laughs> He says it's 66 individual uh, books, and they run the diverse gamut of writing styles, from poetry, history, biography, church teaching, and letters. He said, and these books have dozens of authors, from shepherds to prophets to doctors to fishermen and to kings. These diverse writers each had very different target audiences, disparate life circumstances, and specific agendas for their work. So we don't approach each book the same way for the same reason you wouldn't read a poem about leaves the same way you read a botany textbook. Okay, Now, is he right about different books of the Bible? Some are poetry, some are history, and you don't read poetry and history the same way. Yeah, he's right about that. But when he says that the... The Bible isn't a good book. It's 66 books that are a collection of writings about God. What's he getting at? Well, see, by saying that, he's insinuating that the Bible is not a cohesive whole. He's saying it's 66 books that are put together into a collection, not a cohesive whole. And so he doesn't doesn't say that, oh, don't treat the Bible as a cohesive whole. But that's what he's saying. And that gets me angry. <laughs> because what God put together, every word of it is intended for our benefit. That's what it says here in Second Timothy. And so if you're going to treat the Bible like a, a collection of books of nice writings about God and not cr- treat it as a cohesive whole, you're, you're destroying its authority. And he goes on, uh, sorry, I I get a little upset by this stuff. Uh, He said, And this library didn't fall from the sky, leather-bound, shrink-wrapped, and personally autographed by God. It was collected and collated over hundreds and hundreds of years, often in, in verbal form for decades before being written down, after which time it was assembled and voted on, translated and translated and translated again, hopping from language to language in the process. That makes me angry. (laughs) He's wrong. Don't believe that. When someone says, yeah, but so much of the Bible is lost in translation. It's been translated dozens of times before it's handed down to us. And we really need to be careful about what we believe about God's word. No. (laughs) This is what God gave to us. It's God breathed. It's his inspired word for us. Don't tear down its authority. But this stuff is out there everywhere. He's not the only one that's saying this. And so that's why I'm bringing this up right now. I'm not bringing it up to, hey, you should think about what he's saying here. I'm saying this is what you're going to encounter. It's all over the place. It's plastered all over the Internet. You hear it in conversations with people that truth is relative. There's no absolutes. That what God said was one thing to the Jews and a different thing to the Gentiles, and one thing to Moses and another thing to Abraham. And Jesus was just another revelation and a step of God revealing Himself. And it's all a progressive thing. And now we're 2,000 years beyond that, and our view of God has matured more and more from what we knew back then. No! Has God changed? (laughs) Ugh. It. I'm just going to read a little bit more before I get too worked up about this. (laughs) He says uh, in his third point, he said the Bible was inspired by God, not dictated by God. And he says, Christians will often rightly say that the Bible was inspired by God, quote unquote. He's quoting this verse, but he's twisting it. He says, however, I think the idea often gets terribly twisted in translation and we take huge liberties with that that defy logic and history and the scriptures themselves. This is the paragraph out of this whole thing that I don't like the most. He says, the Bible is God's word, but I don't think it's at all accurate to see the Bible as written by God. In fact, the Bible never makes the claim of itself. The authors of the books often claim personal authorship and clearly describe their specific reasons for writing and their circumstances and mental state during the process. They rarely claim in that time God had possessed them, taken over their minds and limbs and faculties, and physically manipulated them to record verbatim the words we read in the Scriptures. What? (laughs) What? The Bible never claims to be actually personally written by God. Did you not just, (laughs) did you not read this? Did you you not hear where it says that verse I just read in 2 Peter chapter 1, where it says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That says God said it. not men, and that he would have the audacity to say that, you know, men kind of thought this stuff and God didn't directly dictate what was supposed to be written down. I'm sorry, but the Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God himself. He wrote it, right? And all the rest of the stuff we've got carries equal weight, It's not more true or less true because it was or wasn't (laughs) written by the finger of God on a stone tablet. Right? Uh. And that he, that the writer, uh, John Pavlovitz would write such things to destroy the authority of the Word of God. Not just him, but hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other people like him would write this stuff. We have to be warned and it, it hurts me to read that stuff from the, from the pulpit because I don't want for a second for anybody to think any of that stuff is true. Yes, the Bible had a lot of different men that wrote it down. Yes, there was long time spans uh, between revelation from person to person. But does that undermine the fact that it was God himself that gave us his holy word? No. Is it man's best thoughts and feelings about God from the people that have been closest to him? No. This is God's word. And that's why it's recorded for us for all time. That's why it's been preserved throughout the centuries. It's worth recording. It's worth having written down. And uh, he... John Pavlovitz goes on uh, towards the end to make this really beautiful uh, uh, rhetorical argument. He says, God, he says, is like the ocean. It's big, it's vast, it's immeasurable, it's majestic, it's profoundly deep. Uh, and there's vast areas of it that we haven't explored and don't understand. He says a God is like that. He's, he's huge, he's too big for us to grasp. And he says, and all the Bible is, is words about the ocean. See, I can describe the ocean to you in a lot of words, but if you've never seen it, what I say in my mind, you'll never, you'll never grasp it, right? So he likens the Bible to someone trying to describe the ocean. He says, God is like the ocean and Bible is just all the words that we try to use to describe it that can't ever fully do it justice. It's a nice word picture, but it's not true. Yes, God is infinitely bigger than we can understand. That part's true. But the part that isn't true is that somehow the Bible isn't enough. If God wanted us to have more words about Him, He would have given them to us. Right? It says we have enough But to say right in this passage, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, the Bible isn't just words about something that can't truly be described. It's not just that. And if you say it's just merely that, you've missed it completely. The Bible is what God in his infinite wisdom has chosen to give to us. That he may be revealed to us. If he wanted something more said about himself, he would have given it to us. If he he wanted to reveal himself completely, he would have come down. Oh wait, he did. (laughs) And the fact that we had the Lord Jesus himself physically on this earth for over three decades, and that he... (laughs) would offer his life upon the cross on our behalf. That he, the creator, would offer himself a life sacrifice for his creation. What more can possibly be communicated to us poor created beings? God gave everything that he had to love us and to communicate and demonstrate, as it says in Romans, that He demonstrated that love to us. We're not being shortchanged by what we've got here between these two leather covers. right? There's no shortage. There's no supplementary uh, data that we need to acquire to know about God. And yes, we're all supposed to enjoy a personal relationship with God. We're all supposed to get to know Him as He reveals Himself in our lives. And of course, one of the primary ways that He does that is through His Word. If you want to know about the character of God, study it. Love it. Dwell in it. Abide with Him, as as it says. And see the Lord work in your life through answered prayer See, if you don't put the Bible to the test and say, God, I believe the things that you say in here, I'm going to live these things out so that I might see you work and bring you glory as I am created to be, like you say. If I don't ever put this stuff to the test, then of course it's just going to be a book to me. Because the book itself says, don't be just hearers of the word, but doers. Right? We have to do the things that are practiced in the Bible, that are, that are shown to us in the Bible. Because when we go out, and I, I just think of, um, in my own personal life, the tremendous encouragement and insight that I've gained just through answered prayer. And that's just one aspect of our, my spiritual life. One sliver of, and where I pray to God and I say, God, this is something I really care about and I think you really care about it too. And I'd love to see you work because there's no power on earth that can fix this situation or that can see this goal accomplished. And God says, yeah, I'm going to honor that prayer and I'm going to work and I'm going to be glorified in it. When I see the character of God revealed that way, that's, <laughs> that's not information you, that's the experience of God that's the, the knowing of Him but that's not the only way God has given us His words so that we can read what He says about it ourselves and we can say yes God that's true about me thank you for showing my, me myself that reminds me there's a whole second half to uh, verse 16 that I should probably cover here <laughs> It says, what's the Word of God good for? Well, it's good for a couple things. It's good for doctrine, right? That's what we've been mostly talking about so far. It's good for the things that we know about God. It's good for the teachings of the church. Who is God? It's part of doctrine, right? Who is the Lord Jesus? That's doctrine. What's the church, right? The definition of the church is the body of Christ. That's a doctrine found in Scripture. A doctrine is simply... um, I don't have a real uh, precise definition. I'm just giving you something off the top of my head here. But uh, a doctrine is something that we know to be true about God that he's communicated to us. It's something in a teaching that we're supposed to do. right? So it's something we're supposed to know and act out. For example, the church. God gives us a good definition of what the church is supposed to be like. He tells us about the leadership. We just studied that in, in Timothy, about the elders and deacons. He tells us how we're all supposed to be part of one body, uh, drawn and knit together by what every joint supplies. Right? That's all doctrine in the scriptures that we're supposed to know. And it's all there. There's, there's no doctrine that we're supposed to know that's not in the scriptures. It's what we believe. It also says that Scripture is profitable for reproof. Now, oftentimes when I think about reproof, I think about the word rebuke, right? Ah, oh, no, no, you're wrong. This is the right thing. And yes, reproof does mean that. But the, the, um, the idea is, is that reproof is a persuasive thing, right? I'm not coming at someone from a, a critical standpoint of you're wrong, uh, you're an idiot, uh, here's the right thing to do, right? Reproof is a persuasion. Look, I think what you are thinking here is off base, and here's why I think it's off base, and here's what I think the outcome is going to be if you keep acting that way or thinking that thing, right? Here's the right way to think about it. I'm going to persuade you. And so it's, it's persuasive to the believer and the unbeliever alike, Right? The, the word that's in the Bible convicts us of sin, right? We see our own sin when we're confronted with the Bible. We're persuaded of it and the truth of it. Because so often, of course, we like to ignore our own faults and shortcomings. It's a lot easier to do. Right? Helps me feel better. <laughs> I feel a lot better if I can overlook my sin. But that's not what the reproof of the Scripture is there for. It's to persuade me of what a fallen man that I am, and how desperately I need my Savior. I'm persuaded. <laughs> I'm persuaded that I need God because of His Scripture. So it, pers- it persuades both the unbeliever and the believer. The unbeliever it convicts them of sin and persuades them as to how good and loving God is. For the believer who is growing... And their understanding and knowledge of God and of His Word. It persuades us. I mean, I, w- I was talking about Howard about this earlier. You remember the book of Job, where all that bad stuff happens to Job, and his friends try to persuade him that he's in the wrong and that he's done something that's earned him all this uh, punishment and all this tragedy and all this hardship in his life. And they say, Job, you're a sinful man and you deserve everything that you've got coming to you and you better just confess whatever you've done wrong. Right? That's false reproof. They're trying to persuade him to a way of thinking that was not right. No, the truth was that God allowed Satan to test Job. Job. It wasn't punishment for anything Job had done wrong. It was a test. And Job refused to curse God for allowing the hardship to come upon him. And man, if there was ever a man in the dire straits, it was Job. Lost his family. Lost all of his possessions. Was stricken with severe physical infirmity and agony. I can't think of anything worse than than what Job went through. Every sort of loss Job experienced. Emotional and physical, all of it, to the very core of his being. And he said, no, I will not curse God, though everyone persuade me to do it. And at the end of Job, the couple chapters where God speaks, and he calls all the friends fools, and he lays out who he is. He says stuff like... Can you direct the thunderstorm where to go and lightning where to strike and the animals where to give birth and the planets to revolve in their courses? Can you defeat my creature, the Leviathan or the behemoth? Things that I have made that you have no power over? (laughs) Do you have the perspective of having earth as your footstool (laughs) and the clouds as your chariot No, of course not. That, (laughs) you might say, is a persuasive argument. (laughs) God says, this is who I am. Think about it for a minute until you're persuaded. And so if you're ever (laughs) in doubt about how big or majestic or awe-inspiring God is, take some time, spend going to the book of Job. Learn to love that passage, and see what you gain out of that. It also says in our uh, verse sixteen in Second Timothy, it says it's profitable for correction, that is setting straight. We all get off off course, don't we? And the Word of God is there for us to be set straight, for us to be corrected. Into loving one another, into knowing who God is, into properly functioning as a follower of Him. We need correction. We need it one for another. And I think of uh, those verses in Matthew chapter 18 where um, the Lord plainly lays out the way, if someone has sinned, to go and confront them about it privately and individually. And compassionately, he says, so that you might uh, win your brother, right? That's, that's the proper way about it. And he says, if that doesn't work, then go and take a witness with you, right? If God didn't lay out for us how we're supposed to go about correcting those who are in error, how are we supposed to know how to do it? We'd be too tempted to come in there with a two-by-four, wouldn't we? <laughs> hey, brother. You're really hurting these people and whop! <laughs> How's that feel? There, now everybody's got a black eye, let's continue. <laughs> That's not the way to go about it. God's, the scripture lays about the proper way of going about correcting. Because how patient is God with us? You see when the apostles came to Jesus and says, you know how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Jesus didn't say seven times, that's an awful lot. Three or four and you're good. Maybe twice if there's money involved. (laughs) Right? That's not what Jesus said. He said, no, 70 times seven. Right? As often as it takes to demonstrate forgiveness to someone. And boy, (laughs) that's a tough scripture to live by, isn't it? See, I might be able to forgive you 500 times if you insult me about something I don't really care about right a jest or a, a jab in conversation yeah no big deal I, I can I can forgive that a whole bunch of times but what if I lent you a whole lot of money and you said hey I'm sorry I can't pay it back and then a while later you came again and you said hey brother I'm really hurting here I could use some money and so I lend you a large sum of money again if I had two large sums of money <laughs> And you don't pay it back again. You see, I'm not sure I'd make it to seven times. And I certainly wouldn't make it to 70 times seven. But God says to forgive one another. Am I going to put my personal finances as more valuable than my fellowship with a brother or sister here at the assembly? No. Of course not. That's why forgiveness is so important. We can't let little things like earthly possessions come between us. And it's so easy to carry grudges. Oh, I lent them my car and they didn't bring it back with a full tank of gas. How inconsiderate of them. We can't let little petty divisive stuff like that divide us. It's so easy, isn't it? so easy to find faults in others and I say man they're such an inconsiderate person well let me just tell you this from one standpoint I am often an inconsiderate person and I need forgiveness from all of you guys on a regular basis but because I enjoy that from you guys I also must extend it all the benefit can't be my way from all that forgiveness and grace that you all give to me. And so that's something that we have to remember. That's something the Word of God (laughs) tells us to do. We ought to remember these things. It says, Profitable for instruction in righteousness means so that we know what the right thing to do is. Right? How are we to know in this complicated world with all these moral gray areas what God wants us to do what's the right decision when your boss asks you to patch over some stuff and fudge some numbers at work how are we supposed to know what the right thing to do is when we're tempted to leave early but we know our contract with our employer says that we're there for 8 hours a day Right? how are we supposed to know what the right thing to do is Well, God tells us what the right thing to do is. He tells us to honor our employers, to love one another in the church, to honor God in our entire lives. It tells us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Boy, I'd I'd sure like to forget that that verse is in the Bible, personally. It's hard to love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's a lot easier to love Him with my mind because it's very intellectually uh, fascinating to think about all the things that are in Scripture and all the majesties of God. But then God says, I don't just want your mind, I want your heart. I want you to love me, I want you to trust me, I want you to take me at my word. And I want you to honor me in everything that you do. See, that's hard. I'd rather worship at the altar of laziness than love God with my whole heart. But that is not who God wants me to be. And so I'm not saying this like I'm I'm living all of this perfectly. God's still working. It's a war for my heart. But God wants it because He loves me. And I owe it to Him. But I'm stubborn. I'm stiff-necked. And I read like I read this last week in Hebrews chapter 3, where Paul says about the the Israelites, he says, God did everything for those folks in the desert, providing them with manna and quail and water out (laughs) out of a rock. And what did they do? They stiffened their necks in rebellion against him and would not enter the promised land. And so we had to send them out in the desert for another 40 years until they learned their lesson. And, and he says in that passage, he says, so God's people be like the Israelites and stiffen their hearts also? I don't want to be like that. But when I read those verses in Hebrews, I see myself I say, God, yeah. You got me. I'm a rebellious man by nature. And I need your instruction in righteousness so that I know what to do, the right, what the right thing to do is. And I need you, Lord, to take my heart and to purify it. Purge me with hyssop that I may be clean, as David says. I need that. I need the Scriptures. I need God. And why does God give us all this this Scripture, all these things, all these insights into our own hearts and all of the revelation about Himself and how majestic He is? Well, that's the next verse. It says that the man of God may be complete... Thoroughly equipped for every good work. And you know, I went uh, online and I looked up, uh, because I wanted to know what this word complete meant in the Greek, and I looked it up and it means complete. (laughs) It means that we'll have everything that we need for every good work that God has for us. You see, it tells us in this passage and in Ephesians and in dozens of other places throughout the Scripture. That we are created for good works which God has prepared beforehand that we may walk in them. God has a purpose for our lives. That's what He tells us in the Scripture. And these good works, there's no limit to what or how we can do all the things that God has for us. But we have to know that there's something that's prepared for us. And if we're uh, worshiping ourselves and doing things for our own comfort and our own enjoyment and our own benefit, we're missing out somewhere on a good work that God has prepared for us. And I've been pretty personally convicted about that this last week. God has so very much for us to enjoy in our fellowship with one another and our pursuit of Him and our encouragement. You know what's really encouraging? When you see someone say, hey, there's a need, I'm going to fill it. And they do it and it benefits everybody. When, you, when someone does something nice for you, how good does that make you feel? Now, how good does it make you feel as well when you get to be that person? and to do something nice for somebody else. Or maybe it's something that just needs to be done that maybe nobody else sees, but it's just got to be done. Like changing light bulbs around here, (laughs) right? It may not be, it may not feel the same as taking a nice hot meal over to somebody's house and meeting them at the door and they say, oh, thank you so much, right? changing a light bulb might not feel, (laughs) but we still need the light bulbs changed. (laughs) We still need all these things to be done. And there's a church to build and a world to win. And the scriptures are given so that we might be complete, thoroughly equipped to do all of these things. And so we ought to love God's word. It's given for our benefit, for our instruction. And the more time I spend in God's Word, and I hope this, that you find this to be true as well, the more time that I spend reading God's Word, the more I love it and the more time I want to spend with Him, seeing what He has to say about me, seeing what, he has, what love He has for me to pour out towards others that I don't do a quarter a good enough job doing. But it's all there in God's heart that He's longing just to pour out through us. And if we're not spending time in the Word, if if we're not submitting to the God-breathed Scripture that we're given, then we're missing out. And we ought to be warned against not believing the truth of it, of withholding our hearts from where God wants us to be. And dear brothers and sisters, be warned against the false teachers Be warned against those who would destroy the authority of God's word. We cannot afford to give that up. Absolutely cannot. We cannot make God a liar. So let's live out what God's given to us. Prove him to be true. Prove this message that I've said today, that God has given to us. Prove all of this to be true in your own lives. May God reward you richly for doing so. Let's pray. Your God, thank you for giving us your scriptures. May we be more like David, where he waxed eloquent time and time again, saying, Lord, your word is like honeycomb in our mouths, sweeter than honey uh, to us, Lord Jesus. May we love your precious word. May we study it Memorize it. Hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you. May your love pour out through us. May we be a changed people, Lord Jesus. and May may we prove in our day-to-day life the truth of your word against the lies and the falseness that is outside. Lord, we pray that we might honor you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.